You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast, the number one tax podcast for real estate investors. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. Today, Brandon is back. He just could not stay away for long. And we're being joined with Bowtie Broke, entomologist turned land developer, to discuss his journey on how he went from millions to dead broke back to millions, his experience investing in short term rental properties, investing in land development deals, including what Bowtie Broke is currently doing, how you can get started, and whether or not now is the right time to jump in, tips for the next generation, and a lot more. We'll be diving into all of that in just one minute minute. If you paid a non-corporate independent contractor $600 or more in 2023, then chances are you have a 1099 NEC filing requirement, which are due on January 31st, 2024. That's where the filing 1099 NEC masterclass comes in that we're hosting on January 16th at 12 p.m. Eastern. Here's what you'll learn. An understanding of the 1099 NEC filing requirements and whether or not you have to file. A step-by-step filing process to make filing 1099 NECs a breeze, as well as tools and resources to help guide you along the way. Registration is only $27, and by the end of this masterclass, you'll know exactly how to file 1099 NECs. If you're interested, you could register by going to www.taxmartinvestors.com slash masterclass. Again, that's www.taxmartinvestors.com slash masterclass. The replay will be available for registrants in case you can't attend live. And if you're already a TaxSmart Insider, this is included in your membership. So go ahead and check Circle for your registration link. And because you're listening to this show, I'm going to give you the code podcast. And if you use the code podcast, you'll be able to register for only $19. Again, that's www.taxmartinvestors.com slash masterclass. We'll see you there, but for now, we'll dive right into today's episode. Hey, Bowtie Broke, uh, thanks for joining us today. Would you be able to give our listeners who may not be familiar a little bit of information on your your background, how you got involved in the real estate space? Yeah. Um, So I was living in South Florida at the time, and I bought my first ever condo in Bonita Springs, Florida, which is a little town between Fort Myers and Naples, Florida, down in Southwest Florida. And it was my first condo, you know, first home out of college. And I moved into it. And I remember back then, I mean, this was, gosh, 2000 time period, 2001 time period. And, you know, there were no iPhones or anything like that. So, you know, I'd get the Naples Daily News, which was the local newspaper to my house on the weekends. And I remember, you know, they had a real estate section. I always thumb through the real estate section because I was kind of fascinated with it. And I was around 24, 25 years old at the time. And I remember flipping to the real estate section and somehow the rentals popped out. And I saw all these rentals in my neighborhood or the community I lived in for four and $5,000 a month uh, for one month's rental. And come to find out in Southwest Florida, you get snowbird season where all the people from up North come down to South Florida, you know, to get out of the cold. And that's what these was driving these rentals. So what I did was I packed up all my personal stuff through my property on like a, it was back then you had to type out vacation rentals by owner in the URL bar to get on it. I threw it on that site, which is now BRBO. And I moved out in probably October time range. And I had quite a few inquiries from old retired people 
wanting to rent my place. And within a week, I had it fully booked for like five months for one month spans. And from pretty much October, November, December, January, February, and up to around Easter, I'd make twenty to $25,000 every year. I'd move in with a friend of mine. I'd rent a room from him for like $300 a month, $300 or $400 a month. And I'd be getting four or $5,000 a month for my condo. Then when snowbird season was over and everybody went back up north, all the snowbirds went back up you know, north to Illinois and Ohio and places like that, I'd move back into my condo, but I'd have my mortgage paid for probably, I mean, the, a year and a half at that point. So that kind of gave me the bug of uh, getting into real estate back then. And, and again, I was 24, 25 years old at the time. And so what I did was I started acquiring other properties down in South Florida. You know, by the time 2005 rolled around, you know, I thought I was going to be like the next big real estate mogul of South Florida. And unfortunately, the tide turned and I almost went bankrupt. You know, I had multiple foreclosures, deed in lieu of foreclosures, tried to do short sales on some stuff. So my timing was a little off and I got a little bit ahead of my skis, so to speak, from a standpoint of, you know, just staying not taking the the cash, you know, the profits on some of these properties that had appreciated so much, but that gave me the real estate bug. And that's kind of how I got initially into real estate was I rented out my own place to old retirees back in like 2001, 2002 time period. I broke. So talk to me about where you're at today. And then I want to spend a few minutes talking about why you're called Bowtie Broke and like what all that means. So okay. uh, so let's just talk about what you're doing in real estate today. Then I would definitely want to talk about the Twitter thing because I think our listeners will find that very interesting. Um, so today I'm kind of in land development, you know, and new construction. You know, I build cabins in the Smoky Mountains of East Tennessee and West North Carolina. So like Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg, Maggie Valley area. So I build there. But I've also gone into mass land acquisition mode. I'm picking up large land parcels. And generally, I focus on 200 acre plus parcels just to get a lower price per acre. But I'm buying up land that I could find available in the secondary and tertiary markets that are close to you know major areas like Charlotte, Asheville, Gatlinburg, places like that. So I'm kind of going outside of those city limits to you know, an hour, hour and a half to two hours away from a big city, and I'm starting to buy land in those areas. Why land development as opposed to like buy and hold rental property? So when I almost went bankrupt, you know, I and I should have stuck to the original model. I kind of dabbled that, that first condo that I rented out was a short term rental. People stayed for one month and they were gone. So my big mistake in real estate in 2003, 2004 time period was I started buying condos in South Florida to put on long-term rentals. And unfortunately, when you buy a condo or a townhome, generally you'll be in an HOA. You know, I was young and a little dumb. You know, I didn't factor in all the HOA costs, all the excess costs that were going to diminish my cash flow uh, from a long-term rental standpoint. And then when you switch to long-term rentals, you know, you're getting $1,200 a month, $1,000 a month for rent. You know, the HOA eats into that. Then if the air condition goes out and something that eats into it. So I did the long-term rental model for a while. And when 2008, 2009 hit, I, I was not 
cash flow positive, even a dollar, I was negative cash flow, you know. And the other big mistake I made in 2005, 2006 time period, a lot of the loans that I got, again, I was fresh out of college for a few years, had a decent job, but I mean, they were writing loans to whoever back then. And most of my loans were option arms. And the option arm, you know, I'll never forget, you have four payment options on your mortgage ticket each month. And one was, you know, the principal and interest. One was interest only. One was the minimum payment that you could pay. You know, it it was just a craziness. And the option arms started resetting and then my payment would go up, but I could continue paying the minimum amount. So instead of building equity, I was getting you know, debt tacked on to the debt that I had. So if I had a loan for 200,000, the next month it'd be 201,000. The next month it'd be 202,000, you know, because I kept paying the minimum I could pay on that. And with that, I was getting a thousand to $1,400 a month in rent. And it just, again, it wasn't cash flowing. And, you know, I just couldn't keep up and had two new children at the time and, you know, had to do quite a few foreclosures and deed in lieu of foreclosures. So fast forward 10 years, I really, after you go through something like that, I said, I'm never going to touch real estate again. You know, it's, uh, it, it, it's rocked my world. It ruined me financially for a little while, for about seven years, you know, because a lot of people don't think when you go through a bad real estate debacle, it's not like, you know, losing money in the stock market where you lost all your, your money and then you, you move on to something else. Your credit's ruined. You know, when you have a bad real estate transaction, your credit is shot for at least five years. You know, it stays on there for seven years, but you don't start really seeing increases in your credit score until about the fourth to fifth year mark where it starts to have a little less impact, like a foreclosure has a little less impact about the fifth year. So for at least five years, I could not get any credit at all, you know, and that was the kind of the the real bad ramification of having pain in the mortgage space and pain in the real estate is I couldn't get any credit for anything. You know, so I said, I'm never touching real estate again. I started an Amazon business and that started doing really well. I still have my corporate W-2 job and I was doing well there. But, you know, lo and behold, I made a trip to Gatlinburg, Tennessee around 2018 with my kids. I'd gone through a divorce. I made a trip, took my three children to Gatlinburg and I stayed in this little cabin and it was $1,400 for probably three nights that I stayed there. And I looked up on Zillow what the guy paid for it. And it was like $110,000. So having just a little bit of a background in real estate from early 2000 time period, I'm doing the math in my head and thinking, man, I just paid this guy's mortgage for like at least two months. And I stayed three days. So I called up the cabin rental agency that I rented the place through. And I, I said, do you have any realtors that you guys deal with? And they said, absolutely. So they sent me a realtor. And the rest is history. You know, I bought my first short-term rental, I think 2019 in Gatlinburg. And then by 2020, when COVID hit, I had picked up about, you know, people started giving them away almost during 2020. When the lockdowns hit, you had these mom and pop people that had maybe one rental and nobody knew how long the lockdown was going to go on. So the for sale signs really started getting thrown up in 2020. And I picked up about seven cabins in 2020. And, you know, the cash flowed well, the short-term rentals, I mean, cash flowed like nothing I've ever seen before compared to the long-term rentals. So that was kind of my new niche. You know, I thought 
well, let me stay in short-term rentals. And the cash flow was significant. And then by 2021, the appreciation really started to skyrocket on some of these places. By 2022, you know, things I had purchased in 2019, 2020 had quadrupled in value, you know, in Gatlinburg and and, uh, Pigeon Forge. So having learned my lesson from 2007, 2008, you know, I was kind of like, I need to take the money and run. So I sold all of my short-term rentals in 2022, except one, and I used that cash to start kind of plowing into land and and, uh, development work. And as fate would have it, I teamed up with a guy, a general contractor guy, and we started building cabins. You know, he's like, you be the money man. I can get the houses built. We started doing that. And I built one. At first, I got into it. I was going to build them to keep for myself because my expenses were a lot less. I could build one back then, probably 2021. I could build for about $170 a square foot. By then, cabins were selling for about 270 280 a square foot, like existing cabins. So just the math in my head, I was like, well, I can build it cheaper than buying a new one. And I'll just keep it as a short-term rental. Well, I started building in 2021, late 2021. And by the time I built the first one, the prices had just, you know, extremely appreciated. So I ended up selling the first couple that I built. And then that just turned into building more and building more and building more. So there's a lot to unpack here. I know Tom and yeah. Ryan want to ask about the. And, and sorry for that long. Sorry. No, for that no, long no. It was, <laughs> no, it was great. It was great. It gives us a lot of directions to go here. What I'm most curious about is what compelled you to be a buyer in 2020 while everybody else was freaking out. Um, coincidence, complete coincidence. You know, I see a lot of, especially on Twitter, you know, a lot of people think that they're experts in everything. You know, you have finance gurus, you have crypto gurus, you have small business owner gurus, but I'm almost 50 years old and uh, I'm not 80, but I've been around enough to understand that it's not all about being a guru. A lot of times it's about luck and timing, you know, and as kind of luck would have it, I went under contract for a cabin in February of 20 and it was a bigger cabin, you know, I went under contract for it and I close on it. And then two weeks later, COVID hits and I'm like, Oh crap, this, this was a bad decision. (laughs) You know, like uh, here we go again, here's going to be 2008, 2009 repeat for me. But I remember with Tennessee anyways, it opened up very quick, you know, within a month, places like Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg had opened back up. I remember driving by the Golden Corral when the whole country's locked down and the Golden Corral and Pigeon Forge was jam-packed with cars. I was like, okay, unless a nuclear bomb gets dropped in this area, people are going to keep coming into the Smoky Mountains. You know, And that's when I started seeing deals popping up. And the first two that I had started kind of really cash flowing and giving me the cash to put down on others. And I just figured, you know, the Smoky Mountains are a drivable destination for like 50% of the U.S. population. I've been coming here since the 70s, you know, with my parents. I don't think it's going away. So it was one of those things where it was risk, but it was kind of calculated risk where my others were cash flowing so much that I could afford to buy a few more. And then as soon as I bought those, you know, some more, the summer months hit, which is prime vacation, then they those started cash flowing. And, you know, that that's kind of 
you know, what made me keep churning money, taking those profits out of the cash flow and buying more and more and more. You know, interest rates were extremely low at the time as well. Yeah. So that that helped. Well, you also sold at the perfect time too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you well, you, perfect time you, and sold at the perfect time. Yeah. P- pardon my French, but you only have to get your ass handed to you one time in real estate where you don't ever want to get it handed to you again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we have a lot of clients, myself included, and I know Ryan's got a short-term rental. Uh, mm-hmm. So I've got a short-term rental. Ryan's got a short-term rental. And we've got a lot of clients that have short-term rentals because they all execute this tax mm-hmm. short-term rental you know, right. loophole, whatever whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Now, all the CPAs listening hate it when we use the term loophole, but whatever. <laughs> you yeah. get it. Um, yeah. Yeah. They're all executing this thing. So we have a lot of clients that have short-term rentals. And 2020, 2021, everybody was buying like crazy. It was super easy to rent, even in 2022. And then 2023, it got a lot harder. And I experienced mm-hmm. that myself, too. I, I remember telling my wife when we bought our beach home back in 2021, I was like, this is so simple. <laughs> you buy a yeah. home, you put it up on an Airbnb, you take a handful of photos, and then you just walk away. <laughs> and yeah. these people yeah. just come, and they rent it, and it's easy. And yeah. there's all these Airbnb haters out there like, oh, Airbnb is terrible for and I'm like, yeah. all you have to do is take photos. It, it's 30 yeah. minutes of time. And you just yeah. made like a, an $80,000 income stream. You can't. Yeah. What, what is yeah. there to hate? I agree. Um, but then in 2023, it changed. And I had a similar conversation with my wife. And I'm like, man, this is actually a lot harder to do now. Because yeah. it was just like everybody during COVID was like, get me out of the cities. And I have nothing to do. There's nowhere to travel. I've got this extra money. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to go like work from home from a different location. Yeah. yeah. I know that I know the Smokies like really benefited from that. Cause we've got a lot of clients that, sure. that had property yeah. in the Smokies, but the, you sold, you sold like right when it was getting hard. So good for you. Somehow. Well, I mean, I crystal ball it, you're not it, telling us about. No, you know what made me sell, um, all of mine was the insane appreciation. Number one, but also when I'll never forget it. The, the first rate hike came through and I was like, I started getting a little, you know, nervous about that. Then the second rate hike came through like within a month or two. I can't remember how quick it was hiked. Uh, the second, I was like, this is not going to end well, you know? And, uh, so I made this, you know, I started to sell, I sold a couple within probably two to three months of the second rate hike. And then they kept hiking, you know, the fed kept hiking rates. It's going to be harder from just a basic, again, a basic math, you know, back of the napkin cash flow standpoint, you know, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I'm also not stupid. You know, you can kind of calculate as rates go up, cash flow on a short-term rental is going to go significantly down, you know? And I was like, let me get out. Let me take my four time. And again, I say the price of the homes quadrupled, but I had one cabin. It was a kind of a renovation cabin, but I paid 200,000 for it. And it sold for $950,000, you know, that's a 4x multiple, roughly, four and a half time multiple. But that's on the the whole price of the house. I only put forty thousand down on the house, you know. And so to take forty thousand cash out of my pocket and make five hundred thousand, six hundred thousand profit, it was way more than a four x multiple, you know, on, on my properties because I had loans on most of my properties at three uh, percent interest rate you know so i did put money down but it was 20 percent down you know and I, I was looking at the cash return you know the cash multiple on that that's one of the reasons i decided to sell too was like how many times are you going to get a 10x you know on an investment that quick again it was it was luck you know i'm no guru i mean i lost everything i had once i you know i've lost money multiple times and in stock investments and 
MLP, oil and gas, you know, distribution investments. And it was complete timing and, you know, kind of looking back at what I went through in 2009 to say, I don't ever want to go through that again. Let me cash out. It seems like it all worked out for the best at this yeah, point. It did. It did. Yeah. Now you're in land development. What does that look like today? Like land development, I know a lot of people invest in rentals to listen to this show, but yeah. like, what does land development look like? So I can tell you about my niche. There's so many different niches, you know, and segments of land development. You know, a lot of the guys on Twitter, you know, they're in commercial development. Um, self-storage is big. Uh, there's a guy I follow, a car wash guy. Uh, he's into car washes and, you know, building those and buying those. So land development's so segmented, you know, into commercial real estate, residential, you know, different areas. I focus mainly on residential, but mainly cabin uh, developments. So what I've done you know, after I sold some of my properties, I started buying lots in Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge and pre-existing neighborhoods that had city water, city sewer, city electric, and they were easy to tap into all that to build. Um, those were my first few build. New builds were in existing developments that had, you know, tons of lots available for sale. And I'd, I'd buy and I'd be a builder in there. When I moved into big land purchases, you know, I've made a few mistakes already. I started buying mass amounts of land and, you know, uh, large plots of acreage, but I quickly found out, you know, well, wait, and I did this after I closed on one, you know, I spent half a million dollars on a big piece of land. And then I figured, well, wait, it's a mile from the closest electrical pole, you know, so now I've got to pay to run electricity way down the road to do this, that's going to cost a small fortune. So, you know, with me, I've never had any experience in land development before. I've kind of learned as I've gone, you know, but now I focus on big plots of land close to electrical poles, you know, that are existing, you know, places that are close to a road. I don't buy a piece of land on a mountain that I've got to cut a major road in to get to, you know, that's a big expense. So with my land development, the piece I'm developing now is on about 50 acres, but there's a cabin at the top of the acreage uh, that I own. It's got electricity running all through it or up to the cabin and all the way down the road. It's a gravel road. It's got water. I know that I can get to, you know, through drilling for wells. So there's a whole lot of you know, research that needs to go into, you know, finding specific lands. And then, you know, you couple the county regulations with it. The county that I'm about to start developing in just changed all their zoning, you know, in the past couple of months. So that's another hurdle you have to deal with, with land development. There's, you know, again, I'm learning as I go, but there's so many nuances to developing a piece of land. I mean, you can really get upside down fast. I remember telling someone on Twitter, like, they're like, we want to go into land development, teach us how. And my response was, take all of your cash out of your pocket and out of your bank and go pile it in a big pile in your backyard, go strike a match, throw it in that pile. And there you go. There's your introduction to land development. I mean, you can burn through cash very fast and you can go broke very fast with land development as well. If you get kind of sideways on a piece. So if someone was listening to this right now, and sometimes people just love taking big risks, right? If someone was listening to this right now and they wanted to jump into the space or explore the space further, uh, I guess, A, you know, what would their first steps be? And B, would it be advisable to even do that at this point? Yeah, that's a hard question to answer. I've always been a risk, a major risk taker. And again, I've gone completely broke multiple times over the past 25 years. And those times are not fun, you know, especially if you have a family you're supporting. And the one thing that kept my head above water 
was my corporate job that I had. You know, I was able to pay the bills and continue to take risks because I had a corporate job. From a land development standpoint, it's a very hard segment to get into unless you have worked for a big developer like Pulte or Lennar or something like that. And you kind of see the process. I mean, the, the biggest thing, if somebody's young and wants to get into it, I'd say go get you a degree in building construction, go work for a big company like Lennar or Pulte, you know, or one of these big builders, you know, or even a small regional builder and learn the process. And then you can decide if you want to go out and try it out on your own. A lot of developers will buy pieces of land. They'll split up the acreage, say they'll buy 200 acres. They'll split up the acreage into, they'll get it surveyed and cut it up into a hundred acre lots or a one acre lots. So they'll have 200 lots to sell. They'll put in the infrastructure, like the road, the uh, electric underground utilities, the the water system, and then they'll sell the lots and then other builders can come in. Uh, That's not the model I go with. I generally will buy the land, split it up, build cabins myself, and then sell off the cabins, you know, as I go along. So to answer your question, to go into land development, I would recommend you have a lot of cash or you can raise money through you know, I know a lot of people do the syndications, you know, and LPs and GPs. I've never invested in anything like that. And I've never solicited money from anyone for my stuff. If one of my projects goes belly up, the one person I want affected by it is me. You know, I don't want to bring other people into a project and have to explain to people, you know, I need more money or I need, you know, we're having problems or this development's going bankrupt, you know? So again, to give advice to anyone wanting to get into land development, I'd first A, get into real estate period. If you've never done any kind of real estate, get into real estate period through rental property, through short-term rentals or long-term rentals and understand kind of how, you know, this whole cash flow real estate segment works. And then if you want to get into land development, find someone to partner with to build a cabin or build a house somewhere. See if you can sell that and make a profit, you know, and then if that works, then go into bigger things. I mean, land development's not just selling, you know, one house. I mean, it's selling big parcels of acreage, big lots, you know, multiple cabins, multiple houses and things like that. So it's not something I'll just jump right into, so to speak. Yeah. And as you figure out like where you were going to invest. Why did you pick the Smokies? You kind of talked about some of your criteria and things like that, but why the Smokies? I have been going to the Smokies since the late seventies. You know, I was raised on a farm down in North Florida, South Georgia area. And so my, my parents, we didn't have much growing up. I mean, we had cows and chickens running around in the yard. Um, So there were two places that, Broke people would go on vacation if you lived in North Florida, South Georgia area, uh, Daytona Beach or Gatlinburg, Tennessee, you know, or, or Panama City Bay Beach was another place we'd go. So I've been going to uh, Gatlinburg since the late 70s, early 80s with my parents. And I've taken my kids there. And it's just a beautiful. Gatlinburg is beautiful. The drive up through the National Parkway is unbelievable, you know, and I've just always loved the Smoky Mountains. And Again, it was kind of luck, timing, coincidence that I took my kids up there in 2019 and stayed at that cabin and saw the potential for cash flow on the rental I stayed at. And I was just like, you know what? Let me try this. And I bought one. I think I paid $250 for my first cabin there. And it did 
$90,000 in short-term rental income the first year, you know, and it was like, okay, I'm, I'm hooked, you know, and, uh, and that's kind of how I chose was in complete coincidence. You know, I didn't, I didn't study like a ton of stuff. I didn't, you know, dig into deep dive data, you know, it was just, you know, one of those things you have a gut feeling and you're like, Oh, let me try this, see how it works. I think some people probably listening to are wondering if you make a profit from some of these land developments, are you taking some of that money off the table to kind of de-risk? I know you kind of talked about seeing yourself as someone who is more of a high risk taker, but mm -hmm. then if you are taking some of that profit and reinvesting it somewhere else, where are you putting that? Is it just more land development, something else, short-term rentals? What do you so a lot of it's land, you know, like I've got now thousands of acres in the Smoky Mountains collectively. You know, but I'm just developing 50 acre plot here, a 50 acre plot there, a 30 acre plot here. The cash that I'm making from these developments and from these places, I'll stick into other land and like the secondary and tertiary markets from major cities. And that's the stuff I'm going to sit on for years and years to come. You know, one place I'm always posting pictures on Twitter from is this, you know, I bought most of a mountain. I've got a couple more pieces. I always say I bought the mountain, but there's one or two other pieces I need to complete the mountain, you know, that I own. And it's a little over a thousand something acres, close to 1500 acres. But like I was going to develop that uh, and it was going to be about a decade long project, but I've decided not to develop it and just take my kids up on side-by-sides and things like that and hang out with them. So when you're making money on your land developments, you're just rolling it more, you're rolling it into more land mm -hmm. versus like rentals or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of at How's this point, I've got one still for, for the most um, part, out of the, <laughs> for the most part, yeah. Out of the rental game, I may get back into it. I've kept thinking and I've even said a lot on Twitter, like, I really think there's going to be some pain in some of these short-term rental markets of people that purchased in 22 and then early 23 at the peak interest rates and peak prices. You know, and it's going to be hard to cash flow. Uh, like the one that I paid 200 and something thousand for and the person bought it for 950. You know, my job is not to make them money. My job is to make my family money and leave money to my kids and my grandkids. So I told the realtor who I used to sell my stuff, I was like, I don't know how they're going to cash flow with this. Well, they've got a portfolio of like 50. They just want to add this one to it. I'm like, okay, that's fine with me. But doing the math, I was like, you know, you're paying almost a million dollars for something I paid 224, you know, two years ago. And, you know, I cash flowed a good bit, but on a million dollar loan at, or let's say an $800,000 loan at the peak, interest rate it's going to be hard to to cash flow yeah. on this thing yeah no that's really interesting and one question that i want to circle back to that i don't know that we answered was how did you meet your development partner how did that again was, how did that happen? luck Com complete luck complete luck kind of fate so you know i wanted to find a builder in the smoky mountains and i was gonna you know i'd gotten some prices from some builders and again most of the builders back in early 2021 late 2020 could build a cabin for around 170 to $200 a square foot. So I found some builders that I was kind of interviewing to do some new builds for me. And I'd already purchased some lots in a certain neighborhood that I liked that I wanted to build a cabin to keep as a short-term rental. And I asked my realtors like, Hey, do you know anybody, you know, that can clear the land and things like that? She goes, well, this guy's building a cabin right down the road. And he also does excavating. So I went and talked to him 
And he wasn't a general contractor, but he's one of these guys, if you've ever seen these guys that can, you know, they don't seem that smart when you talk to them, but they could take your engine apart, put it all out on your garage floor and put your engine back together by the next morning. You know, he was like that with building. And we just became friends. He cleared my lots for me. We became friends. And he's like, I can build whatever you want. Just give me the plans, you know. Uh, and so we ended up kind of, I want to say partnership, but it's more of a, I own the company and I give him a profit share. It's kind of like a profit sharing, you know, thing on, on the sales of. Well, that was going to be my next question is like, how do you structure that type of a relationship if yeah. you're a money guy? So so, you know, so one of the mistakes I made since I'm kind of new to the building construction and development stuff. And again, if any veteran builders and developers are listening to me, they're probably like, oh my gosh, (laughs) this guy's like doing it all backwards. Like I don't, it's one of those things, you know, for me, I don't know what I don't know. You know, I, uh, I had never built a cabin before I I invested in real estate, you know, I invested in different things and real estate in the two thousands, but from a building standpoint, I, I never touched anything like that. I mean, I could change a toilet out in my house if I needed to, but from pouring the footer to everything else, I had no clue. So one of the mistakes I made was I hired this guy, I brought him on, I paid him a salary. I said, look, come work for me. You're kind of doing, you're bouncing around from place to place. Come work for me. And again, I had sold all of my cabins. So I had, you know, a good five to six million set aside as a cushion to kind of cover me for you know a while on my new kind of business venture so i said i'll pay you a salary of like 1500 a week you know you can be my superintendent you know he's like i've got the crews and everything like that so i ended up hiring his brother hired his son which this kind of turned out to be a mistake honestly i hired his whole family pretty much to build for me and it turned out to be a mistake because i had to fire them all like two years later you know and that's always an uncomfortable position when you're firing relatives of your superintendent and everything so from a business standpoint, I hired about six guys total and we're building, we're going along and everything. But then I did some subcontracting of some stuff. Like one time they were framing one place for me. I needed another one. We had just poured the footer and put the foundation walls up and I needed it framed because I'm kind of a, you know, I'm a corporate guy, you know, and I'm like, okay, it's got to be done by X date. You know, this is the target date and things like that. So I kind of brought my 25 years in corporate America with me on this business. And I'm like, we've got these targets to hit. And they couldn't get to the framing of my next one. And I was like, we're not going to hit the targets. So I brought in a subcontracting crew um, that my superintendent would go over to the site and kind of manage them. And they didn't speak much English, but they were fast and they were good. You know, they threw up a 4,000 square feet framing job in two weeks. And it took my guys six months to do that, you know? And I'm like, okay. So I had to make a business decision, you know, like, okay, is it faster to have my superintendents, one or two superintendents, and then subcontract everything out? And it was for me, you know, being small and, you know, because with six employees, I had a significant payroll expense every month. And during the slow times, especially if you're in the middle of builds, you know, I, I got my rear end handed to me so bad in 2009, I don't use any banks. Like if I can't pay for it with my cash on hand, it's not getting built. Just real quick, was that also true when you were purchasing the short-term rentals? Oh, no, it was not. Okay, I'm not anti-leverage. I'm anti-over-leverage. When interest rates are two and three quarter percent, 
you know, you'd be crazy not to take on some leverage. Right. You know, when interest rates are 7%, you better run the numbers three and four times backwards and forwards to make sure, you know, you can carry that. Well, you know, so. Dave Ramsey recently said that he would not take on, was it a billion dollar loan? Yeah. That's stupid. Zero percent interest rate. Isn't he good, well, I, good advice for the middle class though? Like if you want to stay middle class, listen to Dave Ramsey. Isn't that like the general advice? You wouldn't take on a loan, a billion dollar loan no, with a 10 year term at 0% interest. No, I know. I'm saying his advice is for the middle class. Like, of course, yeah, but like, take on a loan. Should, but even for the middle class, <laughs> take out that loan, zero percent interest, stick it in a treasury note. Flip it in the treasuries, uh, yeah. Five <laughs> percent. Like that doesn't even make sense. You know, I don't know why he would say say that, you know. And I get where he's coming from, like his whole thing. Because look, Dave Ramsey's been around since I was in my twenties. You know, I mean, he's been selling out coliseums and doing talks yeah. and things like that for a long time. So his kind of audience is people who are in debt, you know, yeah. can't manage their debt. You know, so I see what what he point he was trying to make is like zero debt, you know, but from a standpoint of saying I would not take that much money at zero percent interest, that's just bullish. You know, that's like <laughs> some of the worst advice I've ever heard. <laughs> so, so anyway, yeah. so back to your back to your story. So, so you're not you're not overextending yourself, you're buying these lots of cash. Yeah. You yeah. realize the subcontractors are better than staffing. So how did that all end up? You had to you had to terminate everybody? Yeah, um, I did it slowly, and I gave them plenty of notice. Like, I, construction is a different uh, ball game, that's for sure. You know, one was a heroin addict, and he had been clean for about six months, but I brought him on, and uh, he'd start showing up at 10 o'clock, wanting to leave at 2. You know, so he was kind of easy, you know, to have the conversation with. Uh, one of the guys was a good worker, so I gave him about, you know, four to five months notice. I'm like, hey, just start looking. I'm going to have to start moving to a different model, you know, from the standpoint. It's just to keep this thing going, you know, long-term, I need to pivot a little bit and to pivot, my business needs to run on one or two superintendents who are overseeing three to four job sites a piece and then subcontractors doing everything, you know, else. Awesome story. One question. And then I want to transition to Twitter. How many acres do you have today? Um, closer to 2000, over 15, 1500. So spread spread out, you know, through different towns and stuff. So I know that you're an inspiration to a lot of your followers and for everybody on our side that's listening to this, that's like, we still don't know who Bowtie Broke is. We're going to explain that in a second. So hang on. <laughs> but all of your followers, you're like this big inspiration. So if they're listening to this, and I remember I used to do this, I used to listen to these guys that were just, that were frankly 20 years ahead of me when I was in my early twenties. Right. Yeah. And I would get like somewhat depressed because it's like, like I want to be there tomorrow. So right. You know, somebody listening to this is probably like 2,000 acres. You had six employees. You got all this process. You've been through so much. You had $6 million in cash that you're buying stuff with. Like, that just seems impossible. Where do they start? If they want to get into real estate, what's like step number one? Do they just um, go save up 30K to buy a single family home? Uh, I don't even know if that yeah. gets that anymore, but you know, like, wh- where do they start? Uh, contribute to your 401k. I mean, I can't say that enough. Um, and, and let me explain myself. You know, like, most young guys are going to work for a company. They work for someone, a corporation or something that has a 401k. A lot of companies match that 401k. So my company that I was at matched the first 3%, 100%. The second 3%, they matched 50%. So roughly 75% you know, of your first 6% was matched. I mean, that's a 75% return, immediate return on your money. 
you don't find that kind of investment anywhere, you know? So for young guys, I would say 100%, if you've got a 401k, contribute to that 401k to get that match. You know, I'm about to bust my 401k and I've got, after 20 something years, and I was actually going to do a Twitter post on that with some screenshots showing the match and what is that? After 23 years in corporate America, I have about 600,000 in my 401k. Now I left corporate America at 45, roughly, you know, a few years ago, but you know, so many people say, you know, your 401k is going to take you to retirement and things like that with inflation and, you know, monetary policy. I don't know if 2 million is going to be enough, you know, for somebody that's 23 years old and 40 years to survive on. But that 401k for me, it kept me from ever touching it, you know, until I felt like touching it. And I was looking at it the other day, you know, and I have like 300 and something from my contributions over the years, and then like 200 in match, you know, from the company that I was with, 200,000 in match. And the reason mine is at only at 600,000, you know, uh, I mean, I went through a divorce. So a lot of these really young guys talk about my 401k is going to be there for me in retirement. You know, you don't know what life is going to hold for you. You know, you don't know if you're going to get sick, you know, need to access that money. You don't know if you're going to get a divorce, you know, and see that 401k cut in half. So it's not a linear path, you know, up there. But my biggest advice to anybody wanting to get into real estate eventually is don't walk away from guaranteed returns, uh, you know, especially when you're young. You know, if you're talking about a 50% match or a 75% match or a 100% match at your job, you're insane not to take those guaranteed returns. Then start saving a little bit somewhere else. And, and again, it just, it takes time. You know, if you're into crypto, I mean, if you're young in your twenties, roll the dice on some of this crypto, you know, uh, if you're into the stock market and options, roll the dice. Now, granted things change when you have kids and you have a family to take care of, and you have to be a little more careful rolling the dice. But if you're single and want to get involved in this stuff, you need to take some risk, some high risk when you're young, because your risk appetite should be diminishing as you get close to 50, then 60, you should have very little risk at that age. So you need to take your risk when you're young. And to get into real estate, save. Yeah. But take the risk after you've contributed to your formal kit and gotten the match. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Tom's a CFP. I don't know if you knew that. So I know that he's oh, like sitting over here okay. like, I can't wait to chime in on yeah, say you just, <laughs> I always just prioritize, right? If I fill the retirement buckets first and then what's left over from the retirement buckets, then that's when I go and invest in the higher risk assets. And that's just gotcha. the way I put my life. Well, I, I like that advice for two reasons. One, it's super simple. Like it's not complicated. I, I remember trying to learn real estate and I, I thought only like super rich people could buy real estate and it was a super complex mm-hmm. process. And But anybody can contribute to your 401k. You just click a couple of buttons and maybe that's not a good thing, but it yeah. is simple and it's low risk, right? It's just, it's low yeah. effort, low risk. And again, low risk, if you have a company match for 75 to 100% return on your money. I mean, you can't beat that. I think too, a lot of people just struggle with the duration of life component. You know, like I I remember being in my 20s and I worked at PwC and EY and I was just like, oh, I'm not making enough money and I need to be rich tomorrow. And like, you know, but you just don't realize how long life is and that compounding and that 401k really can pay off especially you get that company match too so yeah well that's great well i want to we've got a few minutes left so i definitely want to touch on twitter here so for all of our Mm -hmm. listeners this is bowtied broke that's his handle so if you went to twitter or i guess x.com and you looked up at bowtied broke 
that's who we're interviewing here today. And, and he's grown. When, when did you join Twitter? So 2018, and I did it to just look at some political stuff, you know, or the uh-huh. news. You know, I can't remember why back then, but I never used it. So it's one of those right. apps you you open up and you look for a look, you know, it's cool for like a week. And then you just kind of, I think I deleted it from my phone back then. So I came back on when the Russia Ukraine war uh, came on. I have some friends that live in Kiev and uh, in Kharkiv. And so I was curious, you know, I wanted to keep up what was going on at the onset of the, the Ukrainian Russia war. And it was kind of fast information, you know, that I was getting, you know, and, and I could check, you know, to see what was going on and stuff like that. And I started like just things started popping up in my feed, you know, and there was an account called Bowtie the Bull. And Bowtie Bull is former Wall Street Playboys was there. They had a big account called like a blog, finance blog. There's some Wall Street guys and they rebranded like they had their finance kind of account back in like 2012, 13. So they've been around for a while. There were three or four ex-Wall Street guys. They rebranded from Wall Street Playboys to Bowtie Bull. And he posts things or that account, the people behind that account would post things about real estate, about finance, about Wall Street. And so I chimed in. He, he started showing up in my feed. I chimed in on one of his posts or something. And we got into that kind of a spirited debate about crashing real estate and things like that. So about a year ago is when the account just really started to take off. So I think I had 100 followers December of last year. And then when I started interacting with that bull account, it just started rocketing. And then, you know, I kind of started sharing some personal things, you know, about my life, my divorce, you know, you know my failures and, and uh, relationships and finance and real estate. And I guess people could just relate to that, you know, like, you see so much on TikTok and Instagram of how Facebook and Twitter, everything's perfect. Everything's great. I'm rich. I'm eating filet mignon every night. You know, that's not real life. You know, real life is like a roller coaster ride sometimes. How many followers do you have now? Uh, 60,000. 60,000. That's incredible. Yeah. And you did that about a year? Yeah, Is about it? a year. Wow, yeah. that's, that's amazing. So yeah. one of the reasons that I wanted to bring you on is because I think that the way that you talk about your experiences is very down to earth and true. There's a lot of humility in your posts, which exactly what you just pointed out. You don't really get that on with like your Instagram and your TikTok influencers. Like it's just like, it's all perfect. You're a beautiful Lamborghini that I bought with cash did not lease or did not rent for this for an hour. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) And I think that a lot of your followers like see that too. So I definitely want to get you on, but I wanted to kind of explain or show the side of media that can be, in my opinion, good, not only for like the community, but also for anybody that's trying to grow a real estate portfolio. Like you have a lot of cool experiences that you talk about on your Bowtie Broke account. Right. I've got to imagine that's led to new connections that have helped you deals potentially. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, one of the things I, I don't monetize my account, you know, yet I'm working on the Bowtie Bull account uh, wants me to write a book because my life's been so kind of crazy, you know, and I was, I'm doing that. I'm just, 
I have bad ADHD and it's hard for me. I think I'm through page one of the book. You know, he, he asked me to get on it like eight months ago. The, the title page. <laughs> yeah, I got the title. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm a little further than page one, but you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm going to do that to monetize and I might eventually do some kind of monetization, but I share a lot of the stuff, you know, just to help, you know, the younger generation, you know, out. And again, I'm not going to have free stuff on there forever. You know, eventually it's going to get to a follower account where it behooves me to, you know, turn on some kind of monetization. But right now I'm just kind of having fun, you know, sharing things. But I've had four people who I've met on Twitter come to my mountain property and cruise around, you know, and things like that. And you and Thomas are more than welcome one day if you guys ever <laughs> want to come over there and hang out. Like you're more than welcome to. Um, but it's it's led to a lot of connections, you know, of people like wanting to talk about real estate, wanting to invest and things like that. And and again, I keep investors and in my stuff at an arm's length because that's just not my model. I don't want to loop somebody into a syndication that I start and have to call them and explain to him, hey, you know, I need more money or this or that. So it's not really my model, but from a connection standpoint, it has opened up significant doors, you know, uh, you know, just from growing so fast. That's phenomenal. I know a lot of gurus that teach you how to grow audiences say like go out do cool stuff and then write about it and i feel like you're actually like living proof of doing that uh, so. i posted something about getting a jet pack you know to cruise up yeah, the side of the mountain <laughs> so wait till i get that do you have yeah. a like content strategy like how do you produce the content that you write is I, I try to do like one post a day you know just to kind of I'm sure you saw I went to jail uh, recently, you know, and I can't talk about, I mean, I'm facing a felony charge and a misdemeanor charge, a couple of misdemeanors and a couple of felonies. And I've shared with you what happened, but please don't share with your audience, you know, but, you know, crazy stuff like that. When I got out of jail, I hadn't been on Twitter for like a week and I was at the Fulton County jail, you know, and it was like, holy crap, this is insane, you know, and uh, it was just an interesting story. Like I'm a former executive, you know, corporate you know world and now i'm sitting in on a you know metal bed and and in jail and i thought it was a cool story you know and so i posted that you know and then if i'm up at the cabin you know i'll post something like that and there's no rhyme or reason to my stuff i don't have a strategy i just post what's going on in my life you know and you know sometimes i'll have issues with i've got three daughters you know and i'm like I'll post the craziness of being a divorced dad and trying to raise three daughters, you know, and like I'll throw in stuff about 401k contribution. I'll throw in stuff about navigating corporate America, you know, and how to move up with that. I'll throw stuff in about finances, but it's just scattered throughout. It's like kind of jambalaya, you know, if you want to call it. It's, it a, it's a different it's approach a, than, than what the gurus tell you. I'm telling it, yeah. it's, it's cool. It just kind of comes to so you. Anybody All that right. ever says they're a guru about anything, I don't even <laughs> Uh, <laughs> click neck. <laughs> All right. Final question. Why did you choose the handle Bowtide Broke? What's behind the name? So I had a different handle. And so I don't know if you on Twitter, you see the guy accounts. Like there's a real estate guy. There's a strip mall guy. So the guy accounts really had a big kind of kind of segment of Twitter. And my handle was completely different. I can't remember what my original handle was. So when I met this Bowtie Bull account, I started having the, and I started interacting with it. I started having these other Bowtie accounts pop up in my feed. And, you know, some of them had some pretty good information. So it's almost like 
kind of a marketing thing for the Bowtide account, you know, like everybody's different, but one of the guys that I had up, two of the guys that I had up, Bowtide, Gator, DDS, he's an actual dentist. He has a big practice, you know, and I met him in person. He's legit. You know, he's a legit dentist. Bowtide Opossum is an IT guy with the military. I mean, he's a military guy out in like Utah or something. And so somebody was like, when I had my old handle, somebody in the Bowtide community commented on a post and was like, you just need to go on and change your name to Bowtide. And I was like, Sure. You know, so I was like, what would it be a good handle? Well, since I went broke before, I just picked Bowtie Broke. And it, and I did that and I was only going to keep it there for a second. And I, I changed it and everybody loved it. And I just kind of stuck with it. And you know, the rest is history. Kind of thing. So that's where the name came from. <laughs> it's a great name. And we really appreciate you joining us today and sharing all the information. We're going to go ahead and drop Bowtie Broke's handle into the show notes for anybody who wants to check that out. I'm sure there'll be a lot. Any final words before we wrap this one up for today? You know, I was thinking beforehand about this podcast and everything, and uh, I've got a lot of young followers. And my biggest thing is uh, patience. Like you said, Brandon said earlier, you know, when you're young, you want to be where Bowtie Broke is at when you're 22. You know, it doesn't work that way unless you hit the great altcoin. I'm learning all these crypto phrases because I, I dabble a little bit in crypto now, you know. But unless you hit the big altcoin that has 50,000% return, you know, in two days, you know, making money and accumulating wealth is a slow slog, you know, through mud sometimes. And it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen over a year and it doesn't happen over a decade. Sometimes it's a multi-decade mindset that you really have to recondition your brain with. You know, you can't think like, I want to be a millionaire before I'm 25. I want to be a millionaire before I'm 30. A lot of times it just doesn't work that way. The biggest advice I could give to people is just be patient. You know, find what you love. If it's real estate, great. If you're great at a lot of people on Twitter monetize their Twitter stuff, you know, and they make money like that. Some people do Amazon. I did Amazon. I did real estate. I did corporate. You know, find what you like and what you're good at. And if you crank with one thing, stick with that thing, but to start to kind of dabble in other things as well. But patience is the biggest thing, in my opinion. No, that's phenomenal advice. I think a lot of people do need to take that to heart and realize that you can't, not everything comes overnight. You hear all these success stories or the ones that are few and far between of people who hit it young, but that's not the norm. So yeah, not at all. Not at all. In spite of what TikTok tells you. Yeah. All right. So I think that's going to be a wrap for today. Uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll catch you next week on the next episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.